Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The fallout from the latest fake homecoming party near McMaster. Sex workers calling for changes to the criminal code. How can we reduce our food waste? Solving homelessness in Canada is easier said than done. Aaron O'Toole says he would be prime minister if it wasn't for COVID. And we're celebrating No Sugar Day. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Homecoming originally was for alumni to come back. You know, it's obviously become something over time that's for current that current students view as a, an opportunity to socialize, which which is fine. Uh, but now that that fake homecoming has has risen to the top, I mean, that's something that. Obviously, the us along with our city partners are trying to manage. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Thanks for waking up with us today and each and every day on your radio, online at 900CHML.com and on the Radio Player Canada app, free to download on your smartphone today. That is the voice of McMaster University Dean of Students, Sean Van Kunit, who leading up into the weekend was hopeful that extremely large crowds, the one that we saw last year, did not materialize this weekend, well, how did it go? Maureen Wilson is the counselor for Ward 1 in the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Maureen, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. So how did it go this past weekend? Um, was it an improvement from last year? Yes. Was it acceptable? No. Okay, so why the unacceptability? Is this because Westdale neighborhood residents were still impacted? Yes, indeed. But before I... I I give further comments. I, I would just like to thank um, sincerely uh, the City of Hamilton, the Hamilton Police Service, the City of London's Police Service, the City of Hamilton's Fire Service, uh, EMS, City of Hamilton Bylaw, City of Hamilton Public Health, Transportation, and also to those McMaster students that heeded the call of their university and the city to not attend. Um, there was a great deal of effort. Uh, a public safety committee of staff uh, was me- has been meeting since January with great frequency in planning both for St. Patrick's Day and for this. And the fact that you still had over a thousand students attend um, and we had all of uh, a tremendous amount of resources on site. And the fact that you still had neighbors in that uh, Westdale and Ainsleywood particularly not able to leave their their homes for a period of uh, at least 12 hours, I don't think is acceptable. I don't think it is acceptable to have to have to have that much public resources afforded to one event. And when those police and the fire and the ambulance are at this event, that means they're not able to respond to events important needs across the city. Maureen, is there any estimate on the cost associated with this? I have not received that estimate yet. I know that just planning for and attending to St. Patrick's Day uh, cost the taxpayers of Hamilton a quarter of a million dollars. That's a pretty pricey party. It is, uh, and it is a a price tag that, frankly, McMaster has... um, not contributed to. So uh, with the uh, direction of council, that will be uh, <laughs> that will be the to do of whomever the next mayor of Hamilton is, along with the city manager. McMaster has to come to the table. Um, and I think unless and until they come to the table financially in responding to this matter, there will be um, no incentive in which to attend to it. 
Would these large gatherings be lessened if Mac held some kind of on-campus homecoming event? I think that has to be discussed seriously. And the fact that if some people say, well, um, we don't want to do it on campus because uh, the activities in which we engage with and would not be allowed on campus, I think speaks volumes. If you can't do it on campus, then you shouldn't be able to do it in our neighborhoods. So will the city be handing over a bill to Mac? Is that how it works? Um, I think the city should be letting all residents of Hamilton how know, know how much this uh, preparing for and attending to this event costs. And I know that Queen's University has uh, finally uh, come to the table and is helping uh, to offset the cost of that event in the city of Kingston, I think 300000 for over uh, over three years. Um, that's $100,000 a year, obviously. Uh, that's not enough, but at least it's a start. Maureen Wilson is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Councillor for Ward 1 in the city of Hamilton. Uh, among the uh, measures that were in place as uh, the city prepared for this fake homecoming was that front yards in the Westdale neighborhood were taped off, a dump truck was brought in to manage mm-hmm. crowd control. Did, did these measures have a big effect on, on what we saw? I think in combination, um, the measures... Um, were lessened the size of the crowd. But I, I, I just need us to put our mind to the fact that we had to take these measures. This, is, this should never be accepted as the norm, that we had to have two large dump trucks at each end of a street, that we had to have horses from the police service, and that we had to have an assignment of police service from two cities to protect persons and property. I'm sure that is not acceptable. Uh, no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you there. Are, are, are homeowners in Westdale neighborhood as heated as you are? I think homeowners in Westdale are tired. And in Ainsley Wood, they are tired of um, their neighborhoods being used as an extension of a frat party. Um, I was there for the event in its entirety. I think they were pleased um, that the presence was there this year, and it was very well coordinated by the Hamilton Police Service. But I, I think we have to have an adult conversation. These are adults. These are, are um, students who are in their adult years, and they're in a place of privilege in a post-secondary education. And then the question becomes, are they acting like adults? Uh, really quick, Maureen, do you know of any arrests or tickets from this weekend? Um, my understanding is that there were tickets laid, but I, I do not have the, the details. I, I apologize. All right, fair enough. Maureen, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Maureen Wilson, Councillor Ward 1, City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario Superior Court is hearing from an alliance of sex worker advocates who are calling for several sections of the criminal code to be deemed unconstitutional. The Canadian Alliance for Sex Law Reform, Sex Work Law Reform, say sections of the law that criminalize advertising sexual services and communicating to buy or sell sexual services violate workers' charter rights. Let's dive into this. Yelena Vermillion is the executive director of the Sex Workers Action Program here in Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Yelena, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, and how are you? I'm good. There's a rally being held today as well, correct? 
Yes, I'm on my way to Toronto in just a moment, actually. I have to be at the Superior Court this week in uh, Toronto. What's that, what's that going to be like? What is the message you want to send to people out there? That sex workers' rights are human rights and that we need to defend them by removing the criminal penalties, which often uh, target marginalized women predominantly who work in the industry. It's a smokescreen that the government has put out to distract people, to talk about human trafficking, when it often just muddles this conversation about exploitative working conditions, conditions, pardon me. Um, criminalization puts sex workers in a position where they don't have the ability to negotiate safe condom use, safe sexual acts, what they agree to during a, a, an appointment. And often this creates um, and fosters situations where sex workers are put into violence or put at risk. It's not that the work itself is, is uh, risky or violent, it's that the law itself that criminalizes sex workers, those that sell or trade sexual services, it puts them in situations. So we need to remove those laws. We need to create and adapt a human rights framework. And we need to understand that this particular lawsuit, and sex workers have been fighting for their rights for decades, this particular lawsuit is um, the Canadian Alliance. It's over 25 uh, sex workers' rights groups from across Canada um, that have come together that have conferred and created a lawsuit which is incredibly robust. This lawsuit has a lot more evidentiary record um, than the Bedford case did. Um, it speaks to uh, four charter section violations, uh, the right to life, liberty, and security, the right to equality and non-discrimination, the right to freedom of expression, and of course the right to freedom of association because as workers, sex workers have been uh, not allowed to unionize as other workers. And so to really prove that the, the current criminal laws violate their charter rights to the freedom of association will vindicate the rights of sex workers across Canada and hopefully eventually globally because there are workers who have been um, oppressed and suppressed by the state and we need to remove these criminal laws to protect them. What part of the criminal code do sex workers deem to be unconstitutional? What, what, what has to change for um, sex workers to you know, work uh, or unionize, be free, be safe? Right, so the current laws being challenged in this particular lawsuit are sections 213.1 for penny traffic, uh, section 213.1.1 for public communication, uh, section 286.1 subsection 1 for uh, purchasing and communication to purchase, section 286.2 subsection 1 materially benefiting, section 286.3 subsection 1 procuring, also known as pimping, and 286.4 also known as advertising in the criminal code. So all of those things, they're all parts of the industry, they're all mechanisms of the industry to advertise your, your, your services, to talk about your services with the client, to negotiate those services in a public space. Um, the criminal law discourages and makes it unsafe for sex workers to basically do their work. And a lot of what sex workers have been saying for decades is that if you criminalize any part of the industry, you criminalize all parts of the industry. And what happened in the Bedford case in 2013 was it did, uh, it did remove a lot of the unconstitutional harms of the laws when the Supreme Court decided that they were unconstitutional. But unfortunately, the Stephen Harper's government in 2014 disrespected the Supreme Court decision and created the laws that we currently have, uh, PCEPA, Bill C-36, which we are challenging in court today for this week in this trial. we got a couple more minutes, Yelena. I want to ask you, how do you think sexual services should be advertised, and can we do that and still protect minors? Absolutely. Uh, sexual services are often uh, advertised online. I think that that's appropriate. Um, you know, I think that in private magazines and private forums, um, you know, I don't think it needs, they need, it needs, I don't believe that sexual services need to be advertised in the same way that like a, a burger would be. Um, but I think that, you know, 
sex exists. People have sex. This is a normal adult, natural thing. And I think that we need to stop pretending. We need to stop punishing people for, you know, responding to their natural human impulses. And sex workers respond to those natural human impulses. They respond to a need in society. Um, and I think that we need to not punish them. We need to protect them as workers. And they need to have the ability to unionize like any other worker. And again, this is, uh, this is, this particular case is by led by sex workers from all over Canada, and the laws are ultimately unconstitutional and harm us. And it is outrageous that the government does keep using public funds in court to defend and justify inflicting violence on sex workers, because the Parliament has the ability to decriminalize today. We did not need to bring them to court. But unfortunately, we have to do that because they will not provide us with our own liberation, and we seek it ourselves. Yelena, I really appreciate the time today and breaking down the, uh, the issues that you and uh, many others are facing in this country. Thank you so very much, Rick Zamperin. Thank you for having us again. Have a good Take one. Care and have a one. You too. Yelena Vermillion, Executive Director of Sex Workers Action Program of Hamilton. You can get more info online at sexworklawreform.com. They have a great breakdown of all the things that they are fighting for. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You'll know from previous discussions about food that wasting food is one of my biggest pet peeves. I absolutely hate throwing food away. Can't stand it. I'd rather eat it than throw it away. That's I know that's not the healthiest of options either. But according to the United Nations, about 17% of total global food production, of all the food we produce on this planet, 17% goes into the trash. 17% is wasted. That's a lot of food. Bruce McAdams is a professor at the Gordon S. Lang School of Business and Economics, researches sustainability issues in the food service industry in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph, and joins us now. Bruce, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Boy, do we ever throw away a lot of food. We do, and uh, it's interesting because it's all throughout the food system at all, all areas, from leaving food in the field to processing to our household shopping habits and, and our fridge management and food service. It's, it's mind-boggling that over the last, I don't know, several hundred years or thousand years, we haven't gotten good at this. You know what? It, it's funny uh, you said that you don't like throwing food away um, and, and you make sure you eat it. Some of our research has, has looked at older generations, and I'm not, I'm not uh, putting you in that category necessarily, <laughs> but the, uh, the research that we did showed that people that had had insecure uh, food moments in their life, that had gone through food insecurity, were, were much more likely uh, not to waste food, and that the younger generations in Canada, because they, many of them, the, the fortunate ones, haven't had to worry as much about food security, um, uh, waste more food. Yeah, I, I learned it from my parents, and I'm sure many of our listeners are in the same boat, thinking, uh, "Hey, you know, eat eat what's on your plate," because those starving children in Africa are, are you know, don't have it as good as we do. Uh, absolutely, I I interviewed a man, and he had gone through the uh, Second World War, and his habit was to take his finger on his uh, uh, plate and get all the breadcrumbs and and make sure he got every last morsel because he was <laughs> used to going through that in the war and, and uh, had carried that on the rest of his life. Sounds somewhat familiar in my household. Uh, Bruce, how costly is it for producers and consumers to be throwing out all this food? Well, it's costly from two points of view, Rick. First, the economic costs, but 
what we're more interested in is the environmental cost, which we don't often think of because in restaurants and food service, we actually build the waste into the pricing of the menu. So we expect there to be waste, and so we build it in, and we build it into your pricing. So if you're paying, you know, $10 for a hamburger, about a dollar of that might be considered uh, pricing to cover the cost of of waste. So there's there's that financial, but from an environmental point of view, there's the inputs of uh, of water and energy and labor and all the things that it costs to make the food itself, whether it be, you know, the hamburger bun has to be made of wheat and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's the two sides of the cost. We're, we're really interested, in, and uh, the, the UN, as you mentioned earlier, is interested in those uh, environmental inputs right now. We're talking about food waste and food loss on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with Bruce McAdams. He's a professor at the Gordon S. Lang School of Business and Economics at the University of Guelph. How, how do we fix this? Is it fixable? It is. One of the things we've done in North America that really sort of messed us up a few decades ago, and I'm sure you'll, you'll uh, resonate with this, is we've associated portion size with value versus quality. Many other places I've studied in the world uh, associate value of, of a restaurant meal, let's say, with, with um, quality. But in North America, we really do it with portion size. So you just have to look at the breakfast diner that we all go to, and, and you know you order your, your two eggs and your three strips of bacon, but it comes with a plate full of potatoes and four slices of toast. And, and, and that's one of the things we have to try to get our heads around is, is, is changing you know, what value means to us. And the second thing I would say in, in restaurants specifically, which is my area of research, is the quality assurance and um, you know, and, and I use uh, coffee as an analogy here for for stopping in at a coffee shop and they write the time on the on the um, side of the coffee pot. They throw it out in 15 minutes um, to keep it fresh. So, so we throw a lot of food out because uh, of fresh freshness in restaurants for quality assurance, etc. We need to find ways to minimize that. And then if there is leftovers that are perfectly edible and nutritious. We need to redirect them for human consumption. And that takes us back into the house because with uh, rising food prices, I would suspect that we're a little less inclined to throw out that food, knowing we've thrown out a few extra coins or dollars for it. Could that possibly lead to food safety issues down the road? Yeah, food safety is an issue, and that's that's you know there's a lot of talk about best before dates, of course, and 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 um, you know some people arguing for the removal of best before dates on products because they're really a best before and they're not associated necessarily with food safety. It's it's that quality issue again. So so this is something as a society we have to we have to think of. It's you know some of these these companies uh, i i will say this you know put very aggressive best before dates on um again because if if they if you throw out that product in your house you're going to have to buy another one to to replace it right so so there's lots of sort of societal norms that we've gotten used to um that that we have to consider moving forward very much so bruce really appreciate your time today thanks for joining us thanks rick That's Bruce McAdams. He is a professor at the Gordon S. Lang School of Business and Economics who researches sustainability issues in the food service industry in the the School of uh, Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management, which is located at the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast 
from 900 CHML. We know that rising inflation, the the higher cost of living, is really putting a dent in many of our pocketbooks. It's also, as you probably know, is having a big impact on homelessness in this country. How can we, can we, correct this problem? Well, on October the 13th in Toronto, the annual Louis L. Odette Family Lecture in partnership with the St. Michael's Foundation is going to be holding an event to discuss homelessness. And joining us now is Dr. Karen Shin, Interim Chief of Psychiatry at St. Michael's Hospital and a panelist with this Odette Lecture Series. Dr. Shin, good morning. How are you today? Oh, good morning, Rick. Thank you for the invitation to speak. We've heard stories about people having to leave their homes because of inflation, because of the rising cost of living. It is such a sad state of affairs. It is. That's you know, one of the structural factors is certainly lack of affordable housing. And usually this used to be just in the downtown core of Toronto, but stats can more recently show that this problem is, is just spe- spreading more geographically to a wider area, including um, the areas in geographically um, really around Hamilton actually has had an increased rise in, in homelessness. And also coming out of the COVID pandemic, um, struggles with, with employment, um, lack of um, the inflation, as you mentioned, all of these factors are in place that make it very difficult for people to find safe um, affordable housing. The state of homelessness since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, can we say this is the worst two-year stretch um, in recent history? Well, certainly there has been um, data showing that the issue in the, around homelessness has been growing. It certainly is a factor. I think it probably will take a little bit more time to look retrospectively over the last few years to really compare. But certainly this has been a rising issue and COVID would not have helped. Dr. Karen Shin is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Shin is an interim chief of psychiatry at uh, St. Michael's Hospital and a panelist at the Odette Lecture Series. We're talking about homelessness, which will be the topic of this event in Toronto on October 13th. Hamilton and, and many other communities really have seen an increase in tent cities, and there's been much debate on how to deal with these encampments. At the end of the day, there really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. What should cities be doing with these? It's a real struggle um, with people are looking for places that are, are safe. And sometimes shelters often have poor, can have poor services, can be cramped, and people are looking for alternatives. When there isn't affordable housing, uh, people who are desperate will, will look to ways in order to find um, safe shelter. So it's really an interconnected issue. And many people who are facing homelessness have mental health and substance use issues. So it's not just housing, it's finding housing that also provides supports that will help people's mental health and their um, health issues. And if these supports are available, it, it actually increases people's chances of staying housed. So there's so many different factors involved. Compounding the problem, too, we know that inflation and the rising cost of living is hampering efforts in terms of donations to places like Food Bank or simply financial donations to organizations that help those who are struggling to put a roof over their head. What impact is this having on the homelessness uh, conversation? Yes, everyone's stretched. If people are stretched who usually give, um, it, it becomes a lot harder to then also continue some of the donations and some of the um, and, and for for charities to to really generate um, 
the the donations they need to to function and support um, people who are marginalized. I mean, partly that's why um, you know St. Michael's Hospital. We really want to highlight um, the the issue around homelessness and galvanize the community in, in this um, lecture series is one of the ways that we we hope to do this. It really is an aim to find innovative solutions, showcase. Um, uh, thinkers in this in this field and bring can- Canadians together to influence and inspire change. Um, the, the Odette family um, has been uh, uh, philanthropic leaders in 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 providing support for for the homelessness um, crisis, both in supporting this lecture and also um, connecting with St. Michael's Hospital, which has a long story long-storied um, history of supporting people um, who are marginalized. So it is, you know, often with the support of people who are able to give um, that can lift the, the communities that they live in. Absolutely. Back to the original question, can homelessness be eradicated? Maybe not 100%, but can we do something just a little bit better to get uh, people in a better place? Yes, definitely, and that's part of what research is showing, that there are ideas, there are um, avenues to do this, and that's what we need to keep striving and finding new solutions and working together. But you know, certainly it's a complicated um, process to make all of these things happen. Absolutely. There's no uh, there's no easy answer, that is for sure. There's going to be a lot of work by a lot of people to uh, to fix the situation. Dr. Shin, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, and I want people to know that they can join the lecture virtually. So October 13th, 5 p.m., um, and you can visit stmichaelsodettlecture.ca for more information. Excellent. Dr. Shin, thanks again. Thank you. Bye. That's Dr. Karen Shin, Interim Chief of Psychiatry, St. Michael's Hospital panelist at the Odette Lecture Series. It sounds like it's going to be a very insightful conversation although, I mean, there's no, there's no quick fix. There's no easy answer here. There's so many different uh, avenues that we can go down in terms of fundraising, building t- tiny homes, a little tiny home uh, neighborhood. Uh, the mental health aspect is inserted into this. Yes, inflation and the rising cost of living is having an impact. Uh, there are a lot of tentacles to solving homelessness, and I'm not sure this is a solvable problem. Can we make it better? Yes, absolutely. But uh, I'm not sure this can be 100% eradicated. That is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ideology without power is vanity. Seeking power without ideology is hubris. Canadians deserve a government that delivers exemplary management with a foundation based upon values and our decency as a country. That is the voice of former federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole back on February the 2nd, who uh, basically tossed his hat out of the ring in terms of the federal leadership of the parties. He stepped down and resigned his post. And now he's saying that if it wasn't for the COVID-19 pandemic, he would have beaten Prime Minister Justin Trudeau back in the 2021 election. Yeah, or does this sound like some sour grapes? Kim Wright is a principal and founder at Wright Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Happy Monday. Um, Are you buying what Mr. O'Toole is selling or is this a case of sour grapes? Well, I'm certain Mr. O'Toole believes that. Um, (laughs) So we'll start with that. Uh, look, the, there were a lot of things that, as a first-time leader on a uh, on the federal stage, that Mr. O'Toole 
stumbled over, uh, including his own candidates, including some poorly written um, components of his platform. Uh, you know, notwithstanding his uh, his muscle mag cover photo that he uh, he tried to do to try to shake up the conservative party, uh, but he had some things in that platform that uh, you know that the conservatives had largely settled internally years ago uh, uh, to the gun issue, but they were also fundamentally ill prepared to deal with the rough and tumble of campaign politics and. Uh, so I think Mr. O'Toole is being a bit revisionist. I'm certain he believes he could have and should have won. Uh, but the way that he had structured his campaign, the way he had structured his leadership, uh, really made that quite impossible. And even more so, his leadership style after the election made it impossible for uh, for him to stay. It made it very easy for people like Pierre Polyev to push him out. Yeah, pandemic or not, his flip-flopping on some of the issues from when he was running for the leadership to when he was running for the prime minister's seat, um, I think would have happened either way. Yeah, and that's always the challenge with leadership politics. It's one thing to win the party, then it's another thing to win the country. Uh, and and we see this a lot in leadership campaigns. We'll see it. We'll see it unfold over the over the federal conservatives. This, this leadership race. Uh, you know, they keep having them every couple of years. So hopefully, they learn some things along the way. But it is very difficult to manage both of those uh, those internal and external dialogues. And Mr. O'Toole made it one step further because. The type of campaign he ran the first time he ran for leader was very different than the second time. So then it opened up those contrasts of, uh, will, the mis- will the real Mr. O'Toole please stand up? What is the biggest lesson, do you think, the federal conservatives have learned going into whenever the next federal election is going to be? Well, ideally, it would be to understand uh, where Canadians are at. Uh, yes, Canadians are angry. They're, they're scared. They're frustrated. Um, but don't necessarily feed into that. You know, give actual solutions. Find ways to move forward. They also, the Conservatives will need to look at who who are the candidates that they're nominating. Do that vetting process. Uh, the, those, oops, we didn't we didn't know that. Uh, you know that we always see during a campaign. They have the time now. Go recruit those candidates. Go find what can be. Uh, and and this is advice to all parties, frankly, Rick. I, you know, go find those fantastic candidates, those gems uh, that uh, that are out there in our community, and figure out what is that narrative that you want to bring to can- to Canadians as the leader of a G seven country. That's the challenge. Absolutely. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kim Wright, principal and founder Wright Strategies, as we talk about uh, former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, as he said that he, if it wasn't for the pandemic, he would have beaten Justin Trudeau in the last federal election. Um, Speaking of the prime minister, he seems to be, at least on the surface, recharged and ready for a fight against Pierre Poiliev whenever that election comes about. Yeah, there has certainly been lots of talk in, in circles you know, around Ottawa and across the country of he really wants to get that last go at uh, at Pierre Polyev and has basically told many of his his uh, caucus colleagues in the Liberal benches, hold your ambitions at bay. We're I'm I'm sticking around. Now there's still a long time between now and the campaign, and hopefully, you know, I guess this is my Pollyanna side this morning, Rick. There's still a lot of governing left to do. This is a minority parliament that can and should get things done for Canadians. They could have at least another year, maybe longer, if they decide to uh, work together. 
now if you're if we're just going to play politics and and that uh, that uh, saber rattling then i think fine go go for a campaign but uh, canadians have sent back to back minority parliaments because they expect better results uh, for their day-to-day lives not just the saber rattling and and the headlines what's your best guess on when we're going back to the polls is the spring too early I don't think it's too early. I think it's probably between spring and fall of next year. I don't think that this will go the entire term. Um, But, you know, in the meantime, there's still lots of things, you know, get dental care actually finished, get pharmacare actually finished. Um, There's a lot of things in that new Democrat uh, confidence and supply agreement that the Liberals have that if they're interested in in helping the lives of Canadians, they can. Uh, And if they're just interested in tax, you know, tax cuts and tax incentives and saber rattling, well, giddy up, let's go to the polls. And I would think we only got about 30 seconds that with rising inflation, the cost of living where it is, that's advantage Pierre Poiliev? Not necessarily. What people are looking for is, do you understand what I am going through? How can you make it better? And not only what's happening locally within Canada, but also on the international stage, the war in Ukraine is, is top of mind. But what does that mean? What comes next? Uh, for Canada's military. Can it be something that ice the leaders uh, rise to the occasion of? Yes, uh, but we'll see how they actually do it. Lots to chew on between now and the next voting day. Kim, thanks for breaking it down with us. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Kim Wright, principal, founder, Wright Strategies. As we talk about, uh, well, whenever that uh, next federal election is going to be, it will be, I think, much more entertaining than the last ones. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Happy No Sugar Day. Yeah, today is No Sugar Day. A day to raise awareness on the added sugars and excess sugar consumption that we face on a day-to-day basis, we simply consume too much sugar. I got I got a couple of teaspoons in my coffee. I'm feeling guilty. On No Sugar Day, I'm violating the principles of this day already, and we're like an hour into this thing. Jelka Radosik is the Chief Strategy Officer for the No Sugar Company, which founded No Sugar Day, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jelka, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I am offended you're eating sugar. I know. I about it. I, and I'm talking about it on the radio. I'm like, come on, Zamprin, get with it. <laughs> How long have we been celebrating No Sugar Day? This is actually the very first time oh, that wow. we're celebrating it. So it's, it's a big, big day for us. We're and, excited. And, and we're doing this because we simply, as I said off the top, consume too much sugar. How much sugar do we put into our bodies? So a little sugar is okay, but I think that what's happening right now is that adults are eating three times the amount of sugar that our bodies should be eating. An even more scary fact is that our children are eating eight times the amount of sugar. So that is really the scary part because it's affecting our health in invisible ways, and by the time we realize it, it's really too late. What are those invisible impacts that eventually we'll see down the road? Well, obesity is one. I know childhood obesity is, numbers are rising each year, so that's definitely one of the ways. Uh, it's affecting our heart health. Uh, it's clogging our arteries. It's making it harder for us to exercise. Um, and um, it's affecting also things like our mood, our mental clarity. So there are lots of really great effects if we just reduce sugar. And I think um, in the honor of the No Sugar Day, uh, you know, if you're making your lunches today and you're packing as you're listening, 
uh, opt for a healthier choice just for today. Yeah, there are foods that have natural sugars in them, and, and those are okay. It's, it's all the added stuff, right? Exactly, yes. I think that um, natural sugars are there to help our bodies and give us energy and give us fuel, but I think that the, the real danger is the sugar is hidden literally everywhere. So about 67% of items that you buy in stores contain added sugar and that's really where the danger comes in including our you know salty food choices where you don't expect it to be like bread and sushi so sugar is really hidden in a lot of places today is no sugar day and we are celebrating this on good morning hamilton on 900 chml speaking with jelka radosic chief strategy officer with the no sugar company is sugar addictive Yes, it is. Uh, it, uh, it triggers the same parts of your brain as, you know, some of the other addictive substances does. So it certainly is. And there is uh, on, a, on addiction websites and addiction uh, centers specifically a section for addiction to sugar. So how can uh, our listeners participate in No Sugar Day? What should they or should not they be doing? Well, you can Google October 3rd, No Sugar Day, and uh, you can join us in amplifying the message to the world. I think the most important one is, you know, start with yourself uh, just for today. Cut out sugar uh, in whichever way you can, even if it's, you know, um, cut it out in your coffee or cut, it, cut out that one dessert that you were going to have uh, with your lunch. Start with yourself um, and then, you know, take the pledge, go on social, hashtag no sugar day, tell us how you're cutting it out. Um, and we're also raising money for uh, Canadian Heart and Stroke Association, so you can join us uh, in raising money for that as well. Is there a fundraising goal in mind for today's event? There's $10,000 that we're trying to raise today, so uh, that is one of the ways. And we're also, if you're listening in your corporation and you'd like to join us, we're inviting every organization to um, help make healthier choices for their employees. And if they're producing food, uh, produce healthier food, too. So there's just lots of ways to, to do what you can in your own way. I get the sense that many people don't take sugar as a harmful substance because we find it in things like baked goods. Yeah, there's those natural sugars as well. Uh, do you get that sense as well that we're ju- we just don't take it as serious as we should? We don't because it tastes so good. <laughs> this is true. Um, <laughs> it is true. So the way that Mother Nature made, um, I guess, fruits and a lot of uh, natural foods uh, safe for us to recognize back in the day was by having that natural sugar. So if you ate something and it tasted sweet, you knew that it was safe. Whereas if you tasted something and it was bitter, you knew to leave it alone. So our bodies are built to crave sugar and to want more of it. So I think that as humans, we are naturally wanting more and more, um, and it's considered safe. So it's not something that we would naturally recognize as harmful to us. Well, I'm going to try my best to cut down on the sugar. The coffee is going to taste a little weird this morning, a little stronger (laughs) than usual, but I'm going to do my best, Yelka. Amazing. Thanks for the time today, and uh, happy No Sugar Day. Happy No Sugar Day. Thanks for having me. That is Yelka Radosic, Chief Strategy Officer, No Sugar Company, which founded No Sugar Day. And it's great that it's also a fundraiser for the Heart and Stroke Foundation here in Canada. You can share your No Sugar story on social media. Hashtag It's a No for Me and hashtag No Sugar Day. What are the benefits of reducing your sugar intake, you ask? 
Why should I be doing this, you ask? Well, number one, yeah, things will taste a little a little less sweeter, that's for sure. But you'll have more energy. The, the brain health will be impacted. You'll have a better brain health. Uh, you'll be more focused. You're going to improve your cardiovascular health over uh, a period of time. It's not going to be instant, obviously. And you're going to get better sleep as well, which we could all use nowadays. Uh, more info online at thenosugarcompany.ca or just Google No Sugar Day. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.